Welcome to Baseball Seasons 1970. The birds soar. Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champion. With that out, the amazing Mets completed one of the most miraculous seasons in baseball history, beating the heavily favored Orioles. That was kind of hurt. When you had a club like we had and you win 109 games, you expect to go right through the World Series. As soon as we lost, we started thinking about 70 because we should have won that World Series. Uh, it was just unbelievable that they beat us. From day one in 1970, the Orioles were determined not to allow a repeat of the previous year, and they would go to battle with a nearly flawless roster. There were no weaknesses. It was a ball club that was built in heaven, I believe. Uh, you had power, uh, you had defense, and we had wonderful pitching. The O's were anchored by an extremely strong pitching staff, led by 20-game winners Dave McNally and Mike Cuellar. and future Hall of Famer, Jim Palmer. There's a pitch strikeout for Jim Palmer. We knew that when those three were out on the mound, they were gonna hold that other team down, and if we did our part, and that was play defense and score two runs, we're gonna win. If the Orioles were looking to maintain their dominance in the AL East, and there's the ball game. Over in the NL West, the Cincinnati Reds were just beginning to establish their new identity, symbolized by a new nickname. The Big Red Machine. We were like a machine. We understood exactly the workings of what it took to win baseball games. And at the helm, they were led by a new, little-known manager. Only 36 years old, Sparky Anderson was the youngest skipper in the majors. When they named him manager, though, Everybody was saying, Sparky who? Here is the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, number 10, Sparky Anderson. But Sparky wasn't intimidated by this talented team or by the big leagues. I'm not second guessing, I'm correcting something. He just instantly gained the respect of myself and Bench and Perez. And, and if you get our respect, uh, the rest of the guys are going to follow suit. Yeah, right here, right here. That's a boy. In the NL East, the world champion Mets head into 1970 looking to prove they were no fluke. I don't believe any of the New York Met fans or any baseball fans any place can look at this New York Met ball club and say that last year was just a, a miracle. Hopefully, spring training is going to be a, uh, a start of another championship season. I think we've got the team to do it. Anytime you have the best pitching in baseball, you expect to win every year. And obviously with our pitching staff of Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Nolan Ryan, we knew we were going to be competitive. Nolan Ryan, he can throw a ball through a wall. In his first start of 1970, Ryan strikes out 15 Philly batters. This ball club is going to be in contention for the championship for many years to come. The dark horse in the division was the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Bucks sported an impressive blend of veterans and youngsters, forged into a solid offense. The 1970 Pirates were an interesting group because we had a great foundation. Roberto Clemente was in his heyday. And that ball's off the wall. Clemente digging for two, and he's in there with a typical Clemente hit. Willie Stargell was just going crazy. Willie Stargell with a line drive home run. 
We had a veteran foundation, but the farm system of the parts was starting to bear fruit. Guys like Cash and Hebner. Richie Hebner showed even more power in his second year. Robertson, Oliver. Al Oliver, another product of the Buck Farm System. When we came to spring training in 1970, we thought we had a shot to win the division. Fresh off winning the inaugural AL West crown, Minnesota returned with much of their explosive offense intact, including MVP Harmon Killebrew. Most valuable player of 1969, Harmon Killebrew, is still a terror at the plate. And AL batting champ, Rod Carew. Rod Carew, the man with great bat control. We were confident, even though we had lost to, to the Orioles in 1969, we still had the same type of ball club that we could go out there and, and still come back and compete. However, owner Calvin Griffith wasn't so sure, so he orchestrated a major shakeup after the 69 season, firing manager Billy Martin after only one year. Calvin wanted to, to know exactly what was going on. He liked to talk to his managers, and uh, Billy just saw it as his club, and he was going to do what he wanted with it. Did he give you any reasons uh, as to why he was dissatisfied with your job? Well, I uh, know. He said that he wanted to sit down and talk with me when he got back, but I don't think that's necessary. Billy was guilty of kind of going against the grain, and Calvin just uh, felt that he had no alternative but to dismiss him. Griffith also traded 25-year-old Greg Nettles and others for the quirky former 20-game winner, Louis Tiant. So going into the 1970 season, you had almost everybody back, you had everybody healthy, and you had the addition of Louis Tion. Things looked pretty good at the beginning of the season. Chris Flood, an outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals and a big star, was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. He didn't want to go to Philadelphia. Instead, he went to court. What looked to be a standard trade following the 69 regular season, instead shook the very foundation of America's national pastime. When you think about the all-American sport, you would think of some, something democratic, something free, but these things do not hold true as far as baseball is concerned, not when you can be bought and traded. Under baseball's reserve clause, a player can be traded however the owner pleases, and he may not quit one team and bargain with another. It was the most unfair thing to a professional athlete there ever was, the reserve clause. To find a player that's willing to go the season without signing a contract, and at the end of the year find out if they'll be a free agent, that was always in the works. But none of us dared to do it. And even when Flood finally challenged the league, Players weren't openly supportive. Everybody, from a player standpoint, thought it was a bad decision because Kurt was turning down a ton of money in 1970. Uh, but that was the first step uh, for the players. And what a courageous step it turned out to be. Although Flood lost his case in 1970, his crusade did not go unrecognized. The idea that he was willing to challenge Major League Baseball after 70 years or more of this system under the reserve clause uh, was a very significant event. Rebellion marked the 70s on and off the fields of play. With the growing opposition to Vietnam, the nation was in a state of insurgence. Never was this more evident than May 4, 1970, when a protest at Kent State University went terribly wrong. The National Guard was brought on by orders of the governor. 
There's a group of maybe 50 to 100 National Guard tear gassing the area all around. Some kid yelled, here it comes, and I was looking for a tear gas canister, and next thing I know, they were, you know, shots were firing. The Ohio National Guard came in, and uh, they opened fire on those students, and, and four of them were killed, like nine were injured. It was, it was something that I, I thought would never happen in this country. It was amid this backdrop of tragedy and defiance that baseball played on with one promising rookie who had played at Kent State two years before, challenging the game's established roles. Back in those days, rookies were kind of seen and not heard, you know. Thurman was a little different rookie. He was seen and heard. 23-year-old Thurman Munson was certainly turning heads with his average and a confidence behind the plate that belied his lack of experience. I certainly feel that uh, for a young catcher, uh, he has a lot of ability. Uh, he swings a good bat, and he's a very competitive boy. As the Yankee rookie was lighting up the AL East, the spotlight over in the AL West shone on a different kind of newcomer who was making his imprint in Milwaukee. When the Milwaukee Braves left to go to Atlanta, Bud Selig was in his 30s. Baseball was everything to him, and he was determined to get a team for Milwaukee. After years of unsuccessful attempts, Selig found the perfect opportunity when the Seattle Pilots went bankrupt before the 1970 season. They had gone through spring training as the Pilots, but now suddenly, days before the 1970 season started, the Pilots were moved to Milwaukee. I've often said that whatever else has happened to me, the greatest pride that I will ever have is that fateful day uh, when we got a team back on night of March 31st, 1970. And Gowdy Stadium got a rousing welcome home after a four-year hiatus, where enthusiasm for big league baseball was undiminished by the passage of time. As the Mets looked to recapture some of the magic from their championship season, they found it in the arm of reigning Cy Young winner, Tom Seaver. Seaver was a great pitcher, great competitor. When he got into a groove, he could put that ball any place he wanted to. And never was that more evident than on April 22nd, when Tom Terrific etched his name into the record book. The ball was just, it was like exploding off of my fingers, and I was going right where I wanted with movement. Consider 27 outs. He struck out 19, and in the in that game, he also struck out 10 in a row. 10 consecutive batters for a new record for consecutive strikeouts. Just happened to be probably the best game I ever pitched. It just set a standard in the sense these guys are serious. Meanwhile, in the windy city, the Cubs were still smarting from their epic collapse at the end of 1969 that saw them lose 18 of their final 26 games and the NL East crown to the Mets. We wanted to prove that the uh, 1969 season was a fluke for the Mets. We felt that we were still the best team. We were still the team to beat going into the 1970 season. They started the 70 season playing like it, winning 11 straight in April and taking a two and a half game lead in the division. It's all over. The Cubs have done it again. Soon after their winning streak was broken, the Cubs got to celebrate a streak of a different kind, 
On April 30th, Billy Williams was honored for playing his 1,000th consecutive game. Billy Williams made it as an Iron Man with talent and dedication. Just two weeks later, Mr. Cub himself became a member of an exclusive club. They only had 5,000 people there that day. Playing the Braves. Ernie Banks, 499 lifetime homers. Here we go. Pat Jarvis was pitching to be a fastball inside, and I hit it out. That's a fly ball deep the left. Back, back, and that's it. That's it. Hey, hey. He did it. Ernie Banks got number 500. The ninth man in modern baseball history to get 500 home runs. When I finished that circle around the bases, I was just thinking about how powerful sports is to people alive to just to do one thing here is one of the great moments in baseball history and particularly in chicago like the cubs the orioles had also gotten off to a hot start winning 20 games in may but on the month's last day they suffered a setback in anaheim when center fielder paul blair stepped to the plate against reliever ken tatum Every time I'd faced Ken Tatum before, he'd always thrown me a slider the first pitch. So I was just saying I was going to go up there, I was going to look for the slider. Unfortunately for me, he threw me an inside fastball and broke the floor of my eye, broke my nose, broke my cheekbone. It was the most sickening sound in the world. Paul was down for I don't know how long. Without Blair's presence in the lineup and his gold glove in the field, the Orioles' lead in the standings dwindled. I was out for 21 days. We had an eight and a half game lead. When I came back, we had a half game lead. Out west, the Twins felt the Orioles' pain after losing their own all-star, Rod Carew, to a knee injury. I got off to a great start, and I got hurt at second base, tore my knee up, and I was out from June until about second week of September. The Twins had lost the league's best hitter for virtually the entire season. At the time, losing Carew looked like a terrible blow to the team, but they actually were able to cover for the loss of Rod Carew better than anybody had the hope to anticipate. That's because they bolstered the pitching staff by calling up 19-year-old rookie Burt Blylevin, who made an immediate impression on his veteran teammates. He struck him out. If you see that kid throw when he was 19 years old, you don't think he's a rookie. You think he's 30 years old. Pitching will be a future strong suit of the Twins because of young Burt Blylevin. He played a big role right away because looking at the stuff that he had, the fastball that he had and the curveball that he threw, we knew that we had a, a great prospect. In spite of his age, Bly Levin posted a superb 2.45 ERA at the All-Star break, helping the Twins maintain their lead in the AL West despite Carew's absence. When Rod uh, went down with the injury, obviously that was a blow for us, but for him to come in and uh, contribute, the way he did on a team that was expected to win the division was pretty impressive. As two of the most iconic players of their generation, future Hall of Famers Hank Aaron and Willie Mays were among the game's most popular as well. Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, they were great, great players, and it was kind of like, uh, like a horse race where you have one and one A, and you wouldn't know who to put the A on because they were that great. And come 1970, the duo found themselves neck and neck in pursuit of yet another milestone. 3,000 hit came very easy. I think it was Steve Renko out of Montreal. I always hit him pretty good because he threw a lot of breaking balls, and I was, all, I was always on that breaking ball. Mays hits it in the left field. 
Willie Mays has done it again. He has brought the baseball world to a standstill. Earlier in the year, in Cincinnati, Aaron not only reached the 3,000-hit plateau, he created his own club. The first man ever to put 3,000 hits and 500 home runs together. Well, this is a great feeling, really. Uh, uh, you have to realize that there have been so many great ball players that have played this game, and I'm speaking about fellas like Ruth, William, just to name a few of them that haven't accomplished this feat. This is really great, really. I just feel overwhelmed, and I feel like, uh, I just feel like a newborn child. Aaron's 3,000th hit was the last great milestone to be celebrated at Cincinnati's Crosley Field. As halfway through the season, the Reds said goodbye to their home of 59 years and were welcomed into the new Riverfront Stadium. And the largest sporting crowd in the history of America's Rhineland, 51,000 strong, taxes the capacity of the $45 million ballpark on opening night. Cincinnati fans hope to christen their new ballpark with a win over the Braves. But the pace-setting Reds are jolted by an old familiar figure, number 44 of the Atlanta Braves. Henry Aaron hitting the first homer in the new playground as the Braves spoil the night artistically with an 8-2 victory. Atlanta had plenty of talent to showcase, including hot-hitting left fielder Rico Cardi, who was also chasing history. 1970, I can remember Ted Williams said to me one day, the honest right-hand hitter will be able to hit 400 at man right standing right there, Rico Cardi. He surprised me when he said that. What made Cardi's story all the more amazing was that he'd lost the entire 1968 season while battling tuberculosis. Adversity in the form of tuberculosis and shoulder separations haven't stopped Atlanta's Rico Cardi, and few National League pitchers have either. In game two of this 1970 season, Cardi launches a 31-game hitting streak. The big boy closed out May with an incredible 436 average. And though he'd slipped to 369 by the end of June, fans rewarded his performance by voting him into the All-Star game as the first ever write-in candidate. Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium, the brand new home of the Reds, will host baseball's 1970 All-Star game. 19 future Hall of Famers were selected to the 41st Midsummer Classic, and a star-studded cast of characters watched the American League try to snap a seven-game losing streak to the senior circuit. Oh, let's do it now. What do you say? Come on. Despite both teams' impressive lineups, Jim Palmer and Tom Seaver pitched scoreless ball for the game's first three innings. For the early part of the game, pitching dominates. It was an honor to start the game, but I, I never had a migraine headache until I woke up that morning and I looked at the paper under my door. and uh, The starting lineup, I think Willie Mays led off. Willie Mays. Willie Mays and the rest of the National League big guns are held to only three hits through the first eight innings. The score would remain tied until the 12th when Pete Rose got into scoring position, setting up the most controversial finish in All-Star history. Everybody remembers that game for only one reason. Pete Rose crashes into Ray Fossey at home plate to win the ball game. I could hear that sound in the outfield. It was scary. You know, Pete was just like that. When he on that field, he just like a wild man. There ain't no stop sign for Pete. Rose just rolled a shoulder into him, and the National League is now on its eighth in a row. We didn't look at it as an exhibition game, and I didn't fault Pete Rose at all because he was trying to score the winning run for their ball club. I played as hard as anybody in baseball, but I can honestly tell you, I've never tried to hurt any player in my life. 
I, to this day, don't believe that he had any intention of wanting to run over me. But I just think it was part of the game. Pete is just, that's his style, that was my style, and I just think it was two players that collided. That's the way the man played the game. I think that's the way the game should be played. Rose's aggressive style matched the way his team played, as the 1970 Reds were the team to beat in the second half of the season. Pete Rose's collision with Ray Fossey in the All-Star Game was illustrative of what the Reds were doing to the rest of the NL West, namely, bowling them over. And this one belongs to the Reds! I believe we won 70 of our first 100 games, and we knew we had a real good ball club. And boom is the word for it. When you have a lineup that goes from number one to number eight, you know, it's tough to beat. You can't pitch around anybody. With Pete Rose leading the league in hits and Bobby Tolan winning the stolen base crown, the Reds' big bats always had someone to drive in. Everything went in place. Guys were on base. I was starting to develop my own full power. The ball was as big as a balloon. For Johnny Bench, it was a year that sweet dreams are made of. Bench and Perez were having a, a great year. Bench eventually winning MVP award. Only 22 years old, Bench had a banner year, amassing offensive numbers rarely seen by a catcher. And interestingly enough, through the first half of that season, the uh, MVP votes were probably lining up for Tony Perez. He had 90 RBIs at the All-Star break. With an overpowering offense and a young staff that was second in the league in ERA, Cincinnati looked unstoppable heading into the postseason. We just kept dominating, beating team after team. The Reds seemed to be on a collision course with the Baltimore Orioles, who were led by the KG Earl Weaver, their underrated field general. People thought, well, he's, he's just a guy that sits in the dugout and he pushes the buttons. But he did an awful lot of homework. He was uh, before his time as far as in analyzing stats and keeping records of the hitters and the pitchers. There's the sly fox. Don't ever count him out. Weaver embraced an analytical approach to the game, but relied on a simple formula as his guiding principle. Pitching defense and a three-run homer. In those years, we're going to win you a lot of games. Okay, we know about pitching, and we think we may be learning about defense, but three-run homers, what he was saying is that I don't care how you get on base. You can get a single, you can get a walk, just avoid outs so that when the big guys go deep, you're on base. And these things worked. Long drive to left. The 1970-0s had the personnel to follow Earl's guidelines to an almost terrifying extent. This was a team fashioned in the mind and the philosophy of Earl Weaver. We get great pitching. One run ain't gonna do it. That's just what we need to wake us up. But go after it. Come on, Jimmy. It's gonna get a lot of hitting, a lot of power hitting. Frank Robinson priced two grand slams in successive times at bat. I'd like to say we had a fearsome lineup. Powered by the one-two punch of future Hall of Famer Frank Robinson and the imposing Boog Powell. Boog Powell voted the league's most valuable player. And of course, you had the phenomenal defense. The gold glover at second base in Davey Johnson. You had a gold glover in Paul Blair in center field. And by the incomparable Brooks Robinson. We knew we were good. There was no question in our mind that we were good. The O's were determined to reclaim their rightful perch as the league's best team, winning their last 11 games heading into the postseason. 
The Orioles clinched their division to the surprise of absolutely no one. We were looking forward to the playoffs and getting into the World Series again. Over in the AL West, the Twins appeared to be running away with their division as well. I would have hit the ball. Nobody up. Despite the loss of Carew, perennial All-Stars Tony Oliva and Harmon Killebrew were able to carry the load offensively. Harmon Killebrew was still a terror at the plate, and with that killer instinct, even the opposite field was no insurmountable barrier. While teammate Tony Oliva ripped the most hits for the fifth time. While on the mound, Jim Perry was spectacular, winning 24 games and eventually the Cy Young Award. It was the way the ball came out of his arm, almost out of his shoulder area, where hitters would say, I can't pick up the ball. Jim Perry, en route to his best year ever. However, Minnesota would be tested by the streaking California Angels. Led by AL batting champ Alex Johnson, the Halos would cut the Twins' lead to just three games in September. Together with Alex Johnson's potent bat, the Angels put the heat on the pace-setting Minnesota Twins. You got men on first and third, all right? Two, uh, yeah, come on, one to get right here. Come on, get us out of here. Now we got a long right, way to go. Come on, right. let's go. A sweep of the Angels in early September opened up the Twins' lead in the standings. I don't think there was ever a doubt in our mind that we were going to win the American League West. It wasn't bragging, as the Twins went on to win the division by nine games. Right, up, boys. Setting up a rematch with the Baltimore Orioles for the AL crown. While it never reached the heights of 1968, well known as the year of the pitcher, big league hurlers had their share of dominant achievements in 1970. There were 11 pitchers that earned 20 victories or more, and four no-hitters were thrown, including one by a 21-year-old phenom in only his eighth career start. The pitch that the catcher calls, you always make the perfect pitch. I felt totally focused. There are some questions, however, as to what zone Pirates pitcher Doc Ellis was in when he pitched his way into baseball lore. Doc Ellis pitched a no-hitter in San Diego and told the writers that he had pitched it on LSD. I pitched a no-hitter on the influence of LSD. I didn't really know what was going on out there. The ball looked big sometimes, sometimes it looked small. The writers all came in gathered around the rest of our pitchers and said, do you think that's true? If he told you he was on something, then he, he must have been on something. But I couldn't tell if he was on something or not. Doc, of course, of course, insisted on it because Doc knew the mileage he could get out of it. I don't believe to this day Doc Ellis pitched a no-hitter on LSD. In stark contrast to the pitching excellence in 70 was the mediocre play of the Mets, Cubs, and Pirates as they battled for the top spot in the NL East. The three teams were all pretty good ball clubs. It just seemed like uh, nobody wanted to run away and take it. The Cubs would lose 12 in a row to finish the month of June, opening the door for the Mets and Pirates, whose spirits were lifted by the opening of their new digs. Three River Stadium joins the Pittsburgh skyline, begging the question, is this the year of the Pirate? The move to the fast artificial turf surface at Three Rivers would ignite an already good Pirates lineup. It's a lineup that you knew you had to score five or six runs to win because they weren't going to get shut down. The Pirates slugged their way to wins in 10 of their first 15 games at Three Rivers, 
opening a three-and-a-half game lead on the Mets. And during that stretch, they honored their all-star right fielder for his 16 stellar seasons. You talk about a guy who is quite contained at times, that face and that whole countenance softening. That day was very special, and uh, they presented the statue the same size of him. He was started to cry. It was a very special activity. It was great to, to see everybody have a chance to look at that dimensional side of Roberto Clemente. Having a superb year at age 36, Clemente played a major role in the Pirates' pennant chase, which hit its apex during a four-game set at Shea Stadium in mid-September. We won the first two and, and lose the third game. Now you're gonna face Seaver. You're almost thinking we're no worse than two and two in this series, we held our own. But the Pirates scored five runs against Seaver, and with the score nodded in the 10th, Willie Stargell looked to deliver a series victory. A long home run by Willie Stargell. The Pirates scored three more runs before they went out for a nine to five win. Three out of four is a monster series against the Mets chasing you that late in the season. That statement series propelled the Pirates to the NLCS, where they would be matched up against an even more powerful offense. The 70 Cincinnati Reds, a monster lineup to pitch against. Drove the ball more than 410 feet away. We had strong hitting, and we had good pitching until the last month, month and a half of the season. So we went into the playoffs limping. So the Reds headed into game one, looking to overcome their injury woes. After Gary Nolan traded zeros with the Pirates' Doc Ellis for nine innings, Cincinnati scored three runs and won it in the 10th. You had two teams that were looked at as being very strong offensively. Everybody was somewhat taken aback by this scoreless duel in the first game, and the stellar pitching really carried through the three games. In game two, the Reds got a courageous effort out of Jim Merritt, who bravely threw five and a third innings of one-run ball, despite arm troubles. They took Jim Merritt off the disabled list just so he could pitch against the Pirates. With the Pirates' bats silenced, Red center fielder Bobby Tolan single-handedly provided the early offense. I had a real good game. I remember hitting a home run off Luke Walker, a left-hand pitcher. The base-stealing king of the majors, who showed he could hit with power. I scored all three runs that day. It was just a great game for the, for the Reds. Returning home to Riverfront Stadium for game three, Tolan played the role of hero once more. With a score tied at two in the eighth, he sealed the sweep for the Reds. Tolan slices a single to left, and Klein races over with the tie-breaking run. As I look back now, I kind of wish it would have been the ninth inning, so it could have been like a walk-off base hit. He has it. He'll put it to May. The Reds win the National League flag, and the celebration breaks loose as the Reds win the National League flag. This is what the Orioles and the Twins have been playing for throughout the 1970 campaign and a repeat of the first American League Championship Series when the Orioles won three straight. The feeling was that we had a chance. You don't go into a playoff series thinking you just want to win a game and not get swept. But despite their confidence, there was an eerie feeling of deja vu. And when the first game went south after the Twins taking an early lead, I think a lot of fans said, oh, here we go again. Mike Cuellar hits a ball down the right field line that looked like it was going to hook foul. And now comes Oliva over in the corner. But it fades back into fair territory, and here's the pitcher. Hits a grand slam home run. 
And the Orioles are on top, seven to two. And the onslaught continued in game two. Every game we expected to explode because we were hot and we thought we could win. Line drive down the left field line. It's well hit. Tovar chasing it. He can't get it. It's a fair ball. And the Orioles have increased their lead to six to three. After giving up their second seven-run inning of the series, the Twins were now on the verge of being swept yet again. We had no fire going into Baltimore for that game three. We just, I think, felt helpless. Helpless indeed, as Jim Palmer threw a complete game masterpiece, striking out a career-high 12 Twins and sending the O's soaring back to the Fall Classic to face the mighty Reds. The New Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, which was opened here in July. A crisp, sunny, perfect day for baseball in the opening game of the World Series. Coming into that series, the Reds are facing an angry team that is coming off a World Series loss that they were still very, very bitter about. We've taken a lot of heat from that, and we were not going to lose this World Series. To win it, though, Earl Weaver's club would have to contain a Reds lineup built around pure strength. They had a powerful right-handed hitting lineup with Tony and Lee May and Johnny Bench and Pete. You had to worry about your left-handed pitching in that situation. To try and negate their strength, Weaver chose righty Jim Palmer to start game one, a strategy that would initially backfire as the Reds came out swinging. Usually in a World Series game, that kind of knocks you out a little bit. That's like a first inning knockout. All of a sudden, we find ourselves down three runs. He hit the third ball deep to left. Pastorell is going and going. Said, oh, no, here we go again. Until the middle innings, when Boog and the Birds came back to tie the game. There's a drive into deep right field. Rose flashes a sail into the seats, and this game is tied. Brooks Robinson quelled an early threat in the sixth with the first of many spectacular plays he would make in this series. you'll ever see a third baseman make in a World Series game. Later in the inning, the Reds put runners on first and third, as Bernie Carbo was just 90 feet away from scoring the go-ahead run. You got one away now. Ball right back to the pitcher. You got to go. If he gets you close, got to hang up. There was really not any thought in anybody's mind. I don't think that Carbo was going to try to score. What happened next became the most controversial call of the series and the play that turned the tide of game one. Now, coming in from third. I could hear him coming down, and I'm yelling, he's coming, he's coming. So Elrod caught the ball and turned around, and Ken Burkhardt got a little bit out of position. The umpire went down, and Carbo was arguing. And that just set off a firestorm. Sparky was out of the dugout in a flash. There is no way, Dave, that he tagged him. There is no way possible he ever tagged him. Burkhardt didn't see the play, and Elrod tagged Carbo out with his glove while the ball was in his bare hand. My position was bad, but I was caught unexpected. That's the way it happened, and that's the way I, the only thing I could do. Right, Daddy, that's it. The pitcher's the wall show, man. I promise you that. The questionable call proved costly as the very next inning. Left field. 
Carmel going back. Warning track over. Brooks Robinson has given the Orioles the lead 4-3. A lead that Palmer would make stand up going eight and two-thirds strong innings, allowing just two hits after the first. Rickard comes in, makes one pitch, and wraps up game one. Any momentum the Orioles had gained from their win ended during a sloppy first inning in game two. You don't know what's going to happen before a ball game, especially when they jumped off the three-run lead. Three at the plate, the ball getting away from Hendricks, and the Reds are leading three to nothing. Bobby Tolan added a solo shot on the third to make it four nothing, but the Reds could only hold the Orioles' bats down for so long. Back on the warning track, it is the O's scored five runs in the fifth against a pitching staff that was hanging by threads. Fair ball. Powell will score. Robinson will score. And the Orioles take the lead 6-4. to four. Turned out to be a one-run game, and they won those first two games in Cincinnati, and uh, it was tough to come back from that. It's a good day for baseball as the World Series now has shifted sights. The Reds are up against it. They've now been made five to one underdogs. I think there was not a sense of inevitability, but no team at that point had ever overcome a two games to none deficit in a World Series and come back to win. If history wasn't enough, Brooks Robinson sure seemed to be. As a manager, you'd go to the ballpark each and every day and you're expecting Brooks to make one of those plays. <laughs> In game three, the perennial gold glover made more than one. Bounty ball around at one. Pitcher's best friend, the double play. It's slowly to third. Brooks Robinson up, fire. Well, this guy's in another world. Two and one to count the bench, two out. The Baltimore fans that witnessed Brooks's spectacular plays in the field showed their appreciation when he stepped to the plate in the sixth. Listen to the ovation for Brooks Robinson. Robinson's fourth hit of the series and second double of the game helped load the bases for an unexpected power source. McNally works the count to two and two. That's pretty good. One of three Oriole home runs in the game. McNally's Grand Slam was the first ever by a pitcher in the World Series, helping his own cause in the 9-3 complete game win. But afterwards, all people could talk about was the Orioles' man at the hot corner. I, myself, have never seen nobody like him. Maybe he's getting a little older now, and they said you should have seen him five years ago. My God, if he was any better five years ago than he is now, then they wouldn't need the shortstop. I remember every one of them, me and Lee May. Uh, we were so dumb, we, we kept pulling it. They'd go back to the dugout and look and say, how did that man do that? Down 3 nothing in this series, the bigger question for the Reds was, could they avoid the sweep? The big problem facing the Reds in the 1970 World Series was the depth of their pitching staff. Three of their starters were definitely not at 100%. And I know Sparky was saying that if the Reds won game four, he didn't even know he was going to start in game five. They were going to have to patch together some sort of crazy pitching arrangement. But before they could worry about game five, the Reds would have to beat Jim Palmer in game four. To make matters worse, the Charm City jumped out to a 4-2 lead after three straight RBI singles in the third. 
So to re-energize the big red machine, Cincinnati turned to their spark plug. Really, it was a great at bat. I mean, I thought I made a pretty good pitch. Threw him a 3-2 change up. He called me a name, and then... Gone! Home run, Pete Rose. Still down two in the eighth, the Reds rallied against Palmer and reliever Eddie Watt. The Reds have runners on first and third, nobody out. Lee made the batter. A lead the Reds' bullpen was finally able to keep, winning game four and avoiding the sweep. And while Baltimore's 17-game win streak was snapped, the O's kept their swagger. Palmer came up to me and said, look it, if we don't get them tomorrow, I'll get them the following day. Made me feel a lot better. Weaver's good feelings wouldn't last long, though, as the Reds put up three runs to start game five but the Orioles were determined to close it out at home as Frank Robinson hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the first. Second homer Again, the Reds relinquished their early lead as the O's took advantage of Cincy's beleaguered pitching staff. And I know you feel good, and I appreciate you going out here today. By the end of the fifth, Baltimore led seven to three and were just outs away from World Series redemption. We made that big red machine a little toy wagon because we had a better team. of satisfaction that we did win the world championship there aren't a lot of managers to get to say the world series mvp went to brooks robinson for his defensive heroics they were just that outstanding 40 years later they're still playing some of those films the human vacuum cleaner also cleaned up at the plate, batting 429 for the series. Well, I played almost 23 years professionally, and I don't think I ever had five games in a row like I had in that World Series. You can play a whole week and never get a chance to do anything spectacular. Of course, Robinson did his magic, and all of a sudden you go from losing in five games to the Mets to being world champs. To this day, I still feel the pain of losing in 69, but winning in 70 certainly did help it a lot. The Orioles would return to the World Series in 1971, completing one of the great runs in baseball history by making it to three straight fall classics, but would eventually lose to the Pirates in seven games. It would take Cincinnati's big red machine a few years to realize their dynastic dreams, not winning their first World Series title until 1975. And Cincinnati has won the World Championship. The following year, the Reds made it back to the series and became the first NL team to repeat as champions in more than four decades. The Twins' run atop the AL West, on the other hand, would end for nearly 20 years. After winning back-to-back -back division titles, Minnesota wouldn't make the postseason again until 1987, when they finally won their first World Series title as the Twins. The Minnesota Twins are the World After retiring in 1971, Kurt Flood took his lawsuit against baseball all the way to the Supreme Court. And although he ultimately lost in 72, his case created momentum in the fight for free agency a struggle which was eventually won in 1975. Decades later, free agency is a vital part of the game, and today's players have Kurt Flood in large part to thank 
for the stand he took back in 1970.